But just just imagine yeah. how pernicious a myth that is of because it often gets raised in this debate, right? Well, what about the Congo? Yeah. You know, wasn't the Congo terrible? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, no, it wasn't actually. It was amazingly positive. Black Lives Mattered to King Leopold, and he did an amazing <laughs> thing to support them. <laughs> Welcome to Conversations with Peter Bogosian. Today we will have a conversation with Dr. Bruce Gilley. He's a professor at Portland State University. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Dr. Bruce Gilley, it is an honor to talk to you today. We're going to talk about your fantastic new book, The Case for Colonialism. But before we do that, we have a lot of other things to talk about. Um, you are now the most hated man at Portland State University. Oh, no, that's undervaluing my hatred. I think I'm the most hated man in the Western United States, at least. <laughs> so people people are very, very upset with you. And I remember you were very kind, and you, you took a lot of time to explain. To, we went out to lunch, and you took time to explain to my son and I about colonialism. And I, wanna, I definitely want to talk about that. But before we talk about that, we have some, some um, issues of the day that we need to talk about, specifically the plagiarism scandal. So before I go into it, do you have any brief thoughts on it, the Claudine Gay and DEI plagiarism scandals? Well, I, I think it ultimately all, all comes back to the same thing, which is uh, higher education, maybe general intellectual life as a whole, uh, has always been political, right? right? So you say that this art's political or that writing, that, that guy's book is political. Fine. It, it's always been political in some sense. You, right. know, you can have standards of logic or, or evidence and stuff, but saying that someone's political. But I think what, what happened, which people only now realize, really, is some of these fields, if not all of them, especially the studies fields, stopped being political. Political meaning a situation where people can have different points of view, even though they take points of view. Right. And they became totalitarian. Correct. Which is, means there is no possibility of having more than one point of view. Once a field becomes totalitarian, i.e. what once it loses the, the debate that, that marks a political situation, mm. thinking itself becomes degraded. Because wh why, would you, why would you try and think different thoughts? Your whole job is to find a script and to follow it. And the logical conclusion of that is to actually start to recite it. Right. Uh, to repeat it. Like Marxist ideological training. To plagiarize it. Right. But it's not plagiarism because as a good party member, you're repeating the mantras of the master. You are yeah. citing the key phrases. You are showing how history all can be understood through this master narrative, which in the case of the DEI or the black studies people is the oppression of black people and structural racism. We know that. So in some ways, people having this kind of neo-victorian response oh dear plagiarism right right is silly because of course she plagiarizes because plagiarism is all about a totalitarian mindset of following the master and repeating the mantras and adhering to the principles God, that's so and, and we should have yeah. known all along that these dei diversity uh recruits and appointments we're going to be full of plagiarism because in a communist or a totalitarian mindset, that's not called plagiarism. It's called towing the line. That's so interesting. I never, th I never thought about it from that perspective before. Uh, so by the time we release this, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I can say this now, 
we have found many people who have plagiarized at the highest levels. So that doesn't surprise you. Of course you have. And it's, it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And once we start running these papers they've submitted and published through the fact checker or the plagiarizer or the AI enhanced, enhanced plagiarism detector, we're going to see, just as if I had taken a bunch of papers from Marxists in China and run them through the plagiarism checker, of course I'd find all they do is plagiarize their mentors, their party leaders, the great leaders, the great speeches, right? Yeah. Because that's what totalitarianism does, is it creates a script. And you're expected to memorize it and repeat it. It's not called plagiarism. And so to say a charge of plagiarism against someone like Claudine Gay is rather like charging a party member in the Soviet Union of quoting Marx. Of course I quoted Marx. I did it as much as possible. Yeah. It's not plagiarism. I just learned the lingo and the phrases. Okay, so let, let, me, let me ask you a question because I cannot, I sincerely cannot for the life of me figure it out. Maybe you can help me figure this out. Okay, so she kept her salary of $900,000 a year and it's a private institution. They do take federal funding though. But it's a private institution. You can do anything you want as a private institution. You want to double her salary. That's your that's your business. It's none of my concern. But he, and she and she's now faculty. So she's back in her faculty. She's position. back in her faculty. She's been removed from the administration. So you need to please help me understand two things. And I'm very sincere when I say this. Why isn't she kicked out of the university? But even more so, when your paper came out. Uh, in third world quarterly people, there was a petition I remember that went around saying that they wanted your PhD. Revoked. Revoked. For, they wanted your PhD for an article that you, you made an argument for a position. Like, and, and people are of course free to disagree. That's what we, that's what, that's the whole structure that we've said. That's the coin of the realm, disagreement, publishing, and that's great, fine, wonderful, fantastic. But they wanted your PhD from that. But this woman, has, is a serial plagiarist. We know that for a fact. So please help me explain, one, why she is still faculty, and two, why hasn't she, why is her PhD not revoked? Because she's part of the people. The people, the communists, used to call those who towed the party line and were good members of society or the party, the people, i.e. they're on the inside. And even though reactionary forces may take them down, they're still part of the people. So of course they're, they're kid. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they promote her in the Department of African Studies because she's done exactly what she should do. She's used her color to seize power. She's then used her power to promote the totalitarian ideology of DEI. And then when she's been found to have copied and repeated and propagated the ideology of the masters, and ousted by reactionary forces, she has gone down saying, I'm a victim of racism. <laughs> so not only is she back in place, she should be given a raise. She should be promoted. She is the most loyal party cadre to yeah. the cause of DEI and wokeness that yeah. Harvard has ever seen. Probably, so, yeah. so, you know, the surprise to me is they haven't yet announced a salary raise or an endowed <laughs> chair for her in her African studies. Because she is the model of the good yeah. party hack. Now, I'm exactly yeah. the opposite, right? I'm, I'm yeah, the yeah, white yeah. Russian. I'm right. the white Russian. Right. I am the reactionary. I'm outside of the people. So when I do something that causes controversy, which isn't actually plagiarism or calling for genocide, but it's just part of an article, of course, the reaction to me is, well, that's, that, you know, that's the gulag for him. 
you know, revoke his PhD, revoke cancel his, his article. If he shows up at any conferences, this was Hamad Dabishi at Columbia University, we should attack him, we should mob him, we should silence him, we should snub him. Because well, that, that's all they have. Then, they we, have get, then we get my faculty yeah. union at Portland State yeah. saying I should be stripped of academic freedom and stripped of my faculty position <laughs> because <laughs> my research is outside of the totalitarian ideology of anti-colonialism, right? So yeah, I mean, part of me is like, what do you expect, yeah. right? And people like you yeah. have been studying the totalitarian mindset yeah. of DEI and wokeness for so yeah. long. We shouldn't be surprised when its response to a liberal critique is racists, right. reactionaries. No, that's not what surprises right? me. But what, what surprises me is that isn't there a universal rule set? I mean, there was up until very, very recently, maybe I can't give you an exact date, but maybe 2010, I'm guessing, that if somebody plagiarized a, a, a dissertation, and I, I think it would, it would probably suit me well to have names of people who they've caught in the past who have plagiarized, and then they lost their PhDs, is it that if you adhere to one particular orthodoxy, I mean, okay, so Bracknet, isn't there just some kind of a rule that if you plagiarize, you're, or is it is is there? There's no rule to that. I mean, come on, Pete. Look, look, look at how many what we thought were foundations of higher education collapsed yeah. in the last five years. Yeah. You know, the the idea of a of a student code of conduct at Princeton, Correct. which included don't plagiarize, right. was attacked and taken down by the Black Student <laughs> Union because they said plagiarism's okay. This was long before Claudine Gay. Right, right. right the correct. leading lights of African-American society who have been carefully selected and curated to go to Princeton were rallying on campus to say cheating, plagiarizing, faking yeah. your grades, stealing papers, buying papers is okay because otherwise we're just replicating the uh, prison to pipeline, you know, right. the campus school to prison pipeline. <laughs> so we knew those foundations were crumbling. Uh, mandatory SAT scores to enter, right. gone. Right. Uh, mandatory requirements to pass or reach a certain standard to get a high school degree, gone, right? right? So plagiarism, not okay, gone, right? So, whole... so, so by the time Claudine Gay gets into this controversy, we have these two worlds, right? We have the, the old liberal world of academic standards that you and I live in, right. but we don't realize how far the other side has drifted away from this. And it's yeah. not a we didn't plagiarize. It's a, of course we plagiarized and you pointing it out and saying there's something wrong with it is racist. That's exactly what the critique is, that there's something wrong with us. For So I think that that will go down among a certain group of people. like. Mark Lamont Hill and and his supporters and Kendi and, and Kendi. So just to be crystal clear about something that this is not about race. I'm I'm telling you, right, with total sincerity. I'm running your dissertation through a plagiarism checker, and if you're found guilty of plagiarism, I'm going to suggest that you lose your PhD revoked. Please do. And I would I would demand on our friendship that you would do the same to me. Absolutely. If my PhD dissertation, I can't remember what the name is, critical. I can't remember the name of it. I can't remember what the name is. It's, <laughs> some, it's something like, it's been so long ago. But if that were found to have plagiarism, I would expect on the basis of our friendship that you would call for the revoking of my PhD. Absolutely. The, so that is a kind of integrity. Or that anything is, you've published academically for that matter. Right, right. As, as for me. No, no, for, for sure, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah, okay, so I'll broaden, yeah. So, but that goes beyond the range of, th that's just an integrity issue. Right, so it doesn't have to do with our friendship. 
The fact that I'm your friend, that we're friends, should have absolutely nothing to do with the fact that you would be, that makes the plagiarism okay with, with you. The, the fact that we're white or male or cis or hetero, whatever we want to say, whatever phrase we want, is totally independent from the fact that we violated the closest thing that, that there is to a sin in academia is plagiarism. Like that's the gold standard for bad. So it's independent of any attribute that we possess or of any relationship. Like this is deeper than that. Well, yes and no. I mean, of course, that's the way we would like American society to operate on the basis of equality and colorblind race neutrality and merit. Right. But it doesn't, right? And the reason Claudine Gay was hired was because she's a black woman. That's the only reason. I mean, not even close, right? right? It wasn't even like a tiebreaker consideration. Right, right. Where someone I say, okay, we have two excellent candidates. They both have amazing administrative fundraising experience. They're incredibly well-renowned scholars, you know, 10 university press books each. How was you going to say you that? Know, okay. And I, you know, and we haven't had a black woman and, you know, there's some discussion. It might be useful. Let's do it. Okay. A, a lot of us, even liberals would say, okay, in that situation where the candidates are close and it's, it's just a tiebreaker. Yeah, fine. Not, not even close, right? She was hired only because right. she is a black woman, right? Her scholarship was so tawdry. I know, I read She it. wouldn't even get hired at Portland State. No, I she good. wouldn't. Oh, that's a kind of, oh, that's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a low blow. Holy moly. No, but, but I mean, she, no, no, because actually to get a tenure job in a state university takes actually a decent amount of good scholarship these days, given the, the She mismatch. had 11 publications. I've read as many of those as I can access. I've read them in their entirety. I just read a, a, a um, someone who analyzed her dissertation, and it's exactly as one would expect, barring the plagiarism, uh, sloppy, invalid inferences, fallacious reasoning throughout. Word, word salad everywhere, just nothing but word salad. Yeah, and she was lauded. She won all these prizes. The society has drifted so, we've lost our minds. We've drifted so far from merit. Now the institutions, the engines of knowledge production of society are fundamentally compromised. Well, you could be pessimistic and say that the Harvard case or any of these cases shows that, you know, the academy is beyond saving. And that may be true. But don't forget the, the great thing about free society or the yeah. saving grace of a free society is it can always reorganize elsewhere, right? It can always escape a toxic situation or organization and re regroup in other ways. That's what happens to cities when they get bombed out like Portland did during the George Floyd summer of love. And suddenly all the growth and all the wealth and right. all the dynamism is now living outside of Portland, right? Maybe in the periphery, but, but outside of Portland. So that's okay. We've seen a little bit of that in university space, not just with the new universities, which I don't think really have it, but, but universities that are maybe second tier that are attracting a lot better students, getting away from the woke, woke universities. We see this also in uh, research, right? Because yeah, academic research in many fields like public policy maybe complete joke at this point from within the university, but that's why we have think, <laughs> think tanks, right? We have think tanks who are now basically picking up the slack, right, right. you know, saying the things that need to be said. So, I mean, you can, and mainstream media, another example, right? Basically being hollowed out and now, you know, massive amounts of media reformulating, reorganizing itself on the, on the outside of the mainstream since the mainstream has, has gone through a process of involution. Okay. So let's, Let's just accept by fiat the argument that I'm going to give you is correct. And here's the argument. I'm going to, and I've actually made this prediction for the first 30 days, what we're going to see in, um, and I made this to Travis. I think that this ideology, critical social justice will be pushed into ill repute probably in five months. We already see it 
an expedited version. We see this happening now. I think that, but just accept that, that this is all going to happen. We are going to find that the rot, the plagiarism is rampant among not only DI, DEI bureaucrats. I think that there are, there's a hierarchy of where you'll find it, but in, in this, there's the hard sciences, the STEM sciences, there'll be less so, maybe there'll be methodological problems, but the that's so labor intensive to find we're not even going to talk about that but in dei and soft fields you're going to find rampant plagiarism okay the universities are going to be pushed into ill repute or not ill repute the ideology will be pushed into ill repute the universities will further lose their legitimacy and hopefully the the numbers of enrollment will plummet so my question to you is accepting that that's the case what do you see as the outcome of that? Like, are there like University of Austin? Are there these new universities coming up? Are there, or do the people just, you think there's going to be another sea shift, sea shift where people say, well, don't hire people from universities or, you know, go to Khan Academy and get a share. Like, what do you see is hap going to happen? Remember, there's, there's always a demand side for skills in the economy. And first of all, as you said, in sciences, you know, those fields, despite the attempts of DEI and wokeness, but they can't afford that, right? Because science and technology fields are changing so rapidly with, with computing and computer-assisted biology, physics, chemistry, engineering, right? These fields are, they don't have time for this BS, even right. though we, we see it in medical schools a little bit, but, but not really because even the medical field doesn't have time for this. Professional schools, you know, engineering, uh, dentistry, architecture right i mean they planning they they need to get stuff taught and but then, we see it in there too we see it we in do medicine we, we, we do but it's it's not journals. it's not at the oh, it's, oh, it's, it's not at the core it, it's, it's not it's not at the, at the same degree as in the humanities that's for sure right right so and and, and my guess is it re will remain outside of the core of these fields because there's a simple supply and demand equation which is employers who are expected to carry out highly risky and technically technically demanding skills require employees who can show they've graduated from programs and they will simply not hire you if you're not graduating from a program that's delivering the skills and they'll know within days whether you were taught or not right so i think those areas are pretty safe the humanities and social science is a totally different area because ultimately the reason those degrees used to generate value added for the graduates because you could think was was yeah well you could think you could you were you were Read, you write. were you were uh you were articulate in dealing with others, you could work in groups, right. you could think about social situations, uh, you could execute projects, uh, you had some degree of ability to, to communicate effectively, um, and you were able to shift, you were, you were able to, to change roles, because you weren't so specialized, right? You were a generalist by, by, by training, that's what, what they taught you, is to be a generalist by training, and that's often very useful in an organization. But what happens when those students are found to be less good in those generalist roles mm. than students who went to community college or technical college, right? Well, then you see the, the decline in the enrollment because the, because the decline in the job offers, right? So then you, then you get you know, a, a, a migration into fields that seem to be still rigorous, right? I mean, one of the reasons why we see, we see people migrating into colleges like Catholic colleges or liberal arts colleges that are more conservative is because people are looking for where is that still rigorous liberal arts education. But I think that the bigger picture is, yeah, that <clears throat> social science humanities space that used to generate a lot of value added is just not going to generate the value added and employers are going to know it. So it's going to shrink. 
So you, so if everything I've said is correct, you predict enrollments will further plummet. Yeah. <clears throat> I want to add on one one thing that you said. Maybe it's a pushback. Maybe it's an ad. It's not just that people aren't qualified. It's almost as if they're anti-qualified when they get degrees because they're coming in with the wrong skill sets. They're coming in not with thinking about things in terms of merit or efficiency or what have you, but in terms of having a, developing a lens, a critical consciousness, a lens to identify racism. They're not thinking about it in terms of maximizing shareholder wealth. Like they have a different set of organizing principles that they come into the, so it could actually be an even worse thing that you hired them, whereas if you just hired a, a kind of random person who wasn't indoctrinated, like because it's always worse to do a worse thing by definition than it is to do something neutral. Yeah, but but keep in mind the totality of the intellectual and social maturation that happens uh, for a eighteen year old in the four years between leaving high school and four years in college and getting out. Now, yes what their woke professor forces them to read and write in the classroom is part of that. But if I was to put a percentage wise on that, that kind of inculcation of wokeness into the student as the totality in terms of the contribution to the intellectual social development, yeah. I'd say 20%. Really? Yeah. You don't, you don't think someone no, caught in the orbit of that ideology? No, because I think, because I think 80% of what happens, 80% of what actually generates value for college is simply being surrounded by smart, interesting, curious young people like yourself for four years with a certain subject as the kind of excuse to be there. But much of what happens in college, as we all know who've been there, is the conversations, the friendships, the extracurriculars, even the decoding of your stupid professor, right? I.e. The, the kind of mimicking what the professor wants, mm. but knowing all along that this is nonsense or there's right, something right. wrong with that. Right. That's actually also part of the intellectual maturation process. So, you know, I, professors, and I sometimes I think critics of higher education over-exaggerate the role of the curriculum and the courses in what the students are doing on campus and, and what exactly is contributing to their intellectual and social maturation. So. Students go through these programs and they come out actually amazingly normal. You know, if they, they studied women and black studies or something, right? But they still need to organize the bake sale. They still need to figure out their dorm room, roommates for the next year. They still needed to, to get their flights back and forth. They still needed to, you know, get the debate team to the debate competition. They still needed to get their gym pass and go to the pool three times a week. I mean, all this stuff that's taking place on the periphery is actually part of the maturation process. Yeah, I, I see that. I guess I, I guess I don't agree. I mean, I, I don't agree because what you said would only be true if there were intellectual diversity among the peer group. But if there's a culture, if there's a cultural soup in which certain conclusions are forwarded and certain people aren't allowed to challenge that, it seems like being in that environment would not only be epistemologically and cognitively damaging to one's social and even emotional development, but over time it would be sclerotic in terms of muscles would atrophy that need to work through these problems. Now, yeah, you do have logistics. You'd have to like figure out how to get to the pool or, you know, how to get a gym pass. And that's just, I don't, that, but you would need to do that if you weren't in college. Yeah, but so but remember what's important about college is it's the peer group, right? Is that it's a it's a bunch of kids who want to get further education. So that right. so the the inclination or the orientation of these kids is 
academically to some extent. I mean, less than the lower sure, schools. No, sure, sure, once sure. you're in a good, good state school, you know, everyone's there to learn and to be something and to plan. That's one thing. The second thing is there's a huge difference. And I would agree with you that when we talk about small liberal arts colleges, what you say, the sclerosis and the inbreeding, absolutely. So that's why Reed College, which is close to where I live in Portland, Oregon, is the second highest ranked liberal arts college in the country. It is also the worst ranked college in the state of Oregon, one of the worst, bottom 10 worst in the entire country for taking value away from students based on what we would expect their income to be based on their incoming SAT scores. So that's how we basically add, like calculate what a college does to a person is look at their incoming SAT scores and class ranking and then say, okay, that person like that typically would end up earning this. People who go to Reed or any of these really woke liberal arts colleges way underperform. Now that's exactly evidence of what you're talking about, that that is so inbred and sclerotic and there's no diversity of thinking. But if you're at a big research university, right, don't forget that that faculty of arts and science, right, might be a very small part of the entire university. In fact, I did an article a couple of months ago on looking at all degrees awarded in the United States. Uh, and I found that only about 30% were in fields that could remotely be considered woke. So consider a university that's basically a 70-30 split, right? Now, yes, if you really don't ever leave your, your little college classroom and just hang out with those 30%, yeah, there'll be some, some sclerosis there. But, but you're in a sea of engineers, commerce students, dentist students, biology majors, biomedical engineering, AI, computer science, parks and recreation, right? I mean, and these are the, actually the fields that you're making friendships with. And so there's just a, such a dilution of that woke curriculum mm. in a major research university. So I think the harm is, 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 more, is much reduced compared to in a liberal arts college. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's interesting and somewhat hopeful. I, I want to do one more thing before I talk about the case for colonialism. Do you have any predictions about, what, about specifically the academic landscape, about what we're going to see in six months or a year? So one thing that typically happens in a case like this, the cycle, right, is we're going to see this um, focus on competency for university presidents, right? It's going to be all about competency. The, the diversity hires are going to be out the window. Really? You know, we're going to see a, a move to competency. We're going okay. to see a move to the managers, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like the revolutionary cycle, right? It's like the, 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 the worst period of the revolution is now coming to an end, right? The sort of uh, bloodletting and the crazy extremists who got in positions of power, right, have finally proven to be unable to manage the organization. <clears throat> you get, the, it's called Thermidor in the, it's like the, in the revolutionary calendar in France, this was called Thermidor. This is when the managers came into power, settled things down, right? de-democratized a little bit. So the DEI and the Black Studies Association doesn't get a veto on the university president choice. Competency, you know, proven track record uh, become the, the currency of the realm. I think that's pretty clear, right? That's pretty easy prediction. That the, the, the more difficult prediction is, and therefore do we see some serious efforts at uh, reestablishing the integrity of the university? I mean, you had seen some of that coming in in terms of faculty-led freedom of thought and academic freedom groups springing up, right, a little on the margins, but 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 if the if the 
if the group at Harvard is an example, right, that's a very weak straw to expect reform from, right? Steven Pinker's group, which was set up with some foundation funding to promote academic freedom right. at Harvard, right? And they said, well, we're going to have some seminars and have some teachings and, and talk about higher education reform and stuff. Well, it was nowhere to be seen during this entire debacle, right? Nowhere to be seen. I predict within the next few months, we're going to see massive instances of, of plagiarism. And there's a hierarchy, as I said, with DEI, the, the squishy stuff. I think you're going to see it in psychology. I think you're going to see it across the board. The, the, here's my fear. And for anybody listening, I, I really hope that this is, this is the case. Don't just go, I want people to research, do their own research. I want people to dig in. I want people to be sleuths. I want people to find things. But you can't just put it out there unless you're absolutely positive. Because every, every instance of something that you put out that's not, that you're not positive of, it's going to come back to bite you. And then people are going to say, this is a right it's wing It's going to cloud the issue, yeah. yeah. And then you're going to have other people who don't who want the DEI bureaucrats in place who are going to pretend they found plagiarism who haven't found plagiarism I'm sure someone's already thought of that yet so um, I am I am both optimistic and I'm not optimistic but I think we're seeing the tip of the iceberg and again what's be super interesting to me was to figure out what percentage of colleague of of my former colleagues what percentage of people in, across various disciplines have plagiarized because it's only a matter of time and again, I'm not talking sloppy methodologies or what have you, which Gay also had. I'm talking actual textbook plagiarism. I don't know the answer to that, but within the next few months, we are going to find out. Certainly, what is this month? Certainly within six months, we're going to find out. Keep in mind, we're, we're operating in a world where plagiarism is a rather old-fashioned concept anyways. Right? Most young people grew up in a cut-and-paste world. Uh, that's how they did their research. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this book, The Case for Colonialism. I'm going to do exactly the same thing, but I'm going to put Peter Bogosian right there. <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to write, it's going to be the same book. It's going to be the same title. How do you feel about that? <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me in the least. <laughs> no, but I mean, I'm serious. We know from our own students, right, right. that they don't recognize they're doing something wrong right. when they cut and paste a Wikipedia article and lightly edit it to say what they wanted to say. And now we have ChatGPT going on as well. So, you know, this is not an issue that is, is as cut and dried. It may be cut and dried to us from a, from a standards perspective, but in the culture, this is not a cut and dried issue. Now, how easy is it for the DEI types to then segue or more like to slipstream off that cultural assumption that, you know, we're all in this kind of mixtape kind of culture, you know, and say, well, you know, you're just calling out this mixtaper because they're black, right? And suddenly the issue is clouded over, it's partisan. The you president know, of Stanford was white and he just resigned for, for falsification of data. Yeah, well, but they, that's the thing when you have, when you come in with an ideal, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they just write those things off as anomalous. Yeah, I, don't, I, I just don't think it's as, um, as straight a pathway as you think to say, you have this long paragraph, which is verbatim from this book. There's no footnote. There's no mention of a citation. This is wrong. And you think this is a cut and dried case, right? Well, it's true. It could, she should have been more careful. Duplicative you know, language. Yeah, or, or, you know, she was learning and using and, and was, was sloppy, right? But this idea that, that this is simply a slam dunk case 
for the person to be whatever is is I think a, a a treasure chestnut of you and me, but I don't think that that's going to play out, especially when all you need to do is throw out some cloudy issues like race or, well, all these people said this was plagiarism and it was sloppy. It turned out not to be. So we need to find an, an instance of somebody who was not black, who lost their PhD. There must be somebody who lost their PhD for plagiarism. I'm sure there's lots, lots. And lots. so we need to, so the next thing in this is well, we we'll just look up retraction watch. Right, we just okay. retract, retraction watch has always. Oh yeah, they this. retracted my the hoax articles. Yeah, and they, they did so. anything retracted for any reason. Okay, and a lot of those are plagiarism cases, and maybe you can sort and you can see all the retractions for plagiarism. Okay, so we need to figure out an institutional way to have these people's PhDs broke. And I don't care if you're in any field, philosophy, political science, it, I don't care if you're a midget, I don't care mm -hmm. what your weight is, your height, I think it's totally irrelevant. Your race, absolutely irrelevant. If you plagiarized, you should lose, lose your decision, including me and including you. Of course, of course. Okay. But but let's watch that play out. And, and ultimately it'll always surprise us how it does. It's funny now that all, all of a sudden, because I advocate these positions, I'm suddenly a conservative. That's what fascinates me. Yeah, although remember, you know, so, sometimes it's the room outside the room. And I think if you spend a lot of time inside the room, you're not aware that actually uh, outside of the room, the dynamics are very different. So, you know, of course you're conservative within the higher academic or culture wars perspective because all the people you're arguing against are far left lunatics, right? right? But in <laughs> normal society, people would probably see you as too much of a kind of waffly liberal. Yeah, liberal, liberal. yeah and, totally. and in American political discourse, you'd be kind of like suspicious center or center leftist. So actually, you know, it's like, where are you calibrating yeah, yourself? Yeah, you know, and if you're, if you're in the lunatic asylum, you're going to be the sanest person there. Yeah. <clears throat> Doesn't mean you don't have some mental issues in right. society. <laughs> right, right. So, okay, so let's let's go back. So I required the case for colonialism for all my students. Um, talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about that. That was a crazy controversy. So <clears throat> people lost their minds at you. Tell us about I know you've talked about it before, but just, just tell us about it. So it's 2017, this article came out. So it's six years now. Um, the article was basically a backgrounder for myself because I was about to write the biography of a British colonial official. And he had written and said a lot about the case for colonialism, but he, was a, he wasn't a scholar, he was an official. He was giving speeches and it was kind of all over the place. And I was like, let's bring some order to this argument. Like what exactly is the argument? How does it run yeah. you know, logically? And, and so I essentially put this argument together to be useful for myself before I wrote the book. So when I came to, to kind of some ways repeating and, and making sense of what he had said, I could organize a little better. So and that who's was the reason. He? Sir Alan Burns okay. uh, was a British colonial official. The book was called The Last Imperialist, uh, ended up coming out in 2019. Um, and, you know, it was very successful. But this this was a backgrounder to that, essentially, for myself. But I thought, hey, this is useful, you know, because who, who, there's not this article out there, right? It's, I mean, we always have these kind of the case for this, the case for that, in defense of this or against this, whatever. That's part of the academic discourse. And I had published an article two years earlier on... Uh, Chinua Kebe, the, the African novelist, yes, remember that. saying that this guy who is supposedly this pantheonic figure in anti-colonialism actually wasn't anti-colonial at all, or at least he had mixed views, 
would be a charitable reading. Okay, let's, let me pause you. Explain colonialism. What is that in like two sentences? Colonialism in one sentence yeah. is when country A extends its governance system over territory B, which does not have a sovereign governing system at the time. Okay. All right. So that situates it. So you wrote The Case for Colonialism in 2017, and you published it in Third World Quarterly, which high impact factor journal, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Right. So it's a very reputable. It wasn't, a, you know, back of a magazine journal. It was a very highly reputable academic journal. And what happened? Well, it got two reviews. One was positive, one was negative. So typically in a case like that, it goes to the editor and the editor can make a decision, accept or reject. Uh, and uh, funnily enough, I had the same experience with a, with a, the first journal I submitted it to, the Journal of Intervention and State Building, got one accept, one reject. And the managing editor, rather than making his call based on academic criteria or his judgment, went to the board and said, I'd really like to publish this, but I'm kind of afraid of the backlash. And the board said, you're right, too politically risky, give it a reject because of the political backlash. Right. So not that it was false or sloppy, sloppy afraid argumentation. To publish it. Afraid to publish Fear. it. Afraid okay. to publish it. Um, and I, he, I name him in the book, you know, it's all public. Um, uh, so Third World Quarterly was the same, except reject. But this time the editor did what an editor is supposed to do, just exercise his or her judgment in terms of the academic merit. merit. Uh, how, merit. How, merit, whether the article would contribute to the journal, spark a debate. And he said, yes, this is great. Let's run it. He said, let's run it as a commentary article rather than as original research article. So it's a peer-reviewed commentary article rather than a peer-reviewed research article. But, you know, like most journals, they have a variety of types of peer-reviewed articles that they accept. You know, short research contributions, research articles, commentaries, whatever. I said, fine, publish it as a commentary article. Within minutes of its appearance online, <laughs> before its formal publication in the journal, there was an outrage storm on Facebook, started on Facebook, right? Because a friend of mine in Australia said, oh, you're like not my Facebook page, mate. Well done, you know, in an email that's to good. me. That's good, dude. Very yeah, and, uh, and I said, uh, what's going on? I saw a colleague of mine on the street. She said, do you know what's happening out there? I was like, no, you mean the article? Yeah. Oh, she said, it's much bigger than you think. Yeah. By the time I got back to my desk, I mean, thousands of hate mails filling up my email box such that, such that my email at Portland State stopped accepting new emails. It crashed my email <laughs> box, basically. And then two petitions started up, right? One petition by a woman who was a graduate of interpretive dance in the UK. You just saying, can't make it up, saying, you? saying, uh, saying, uh, uh, stop reading the Third World Quarterly, punish the Third World Quarterly. The other started by a tenured academic at Syracuse University called Farhana Sultana oh, yeah, from yeah, Bangladesh, yeah. Uh, who obviously didn't get the message when she migrated to the United States that this is a free country and we're supposed to uphold academic freedom. A Princeton graduate, by the way, it's my Year alma mater. Four, Farhana Sultana said that we demand the article be retracted. We demand that both Gilly and the editor of the Third World Quarterly apologize. And then separately on her Facebook page, she started a petition to have my PhD from Princeton revoked. <laughs> and so in 
By the time it was all said and done, more than 40,000 people I, had signed I, I, these, I these two petitions. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, the way it was resolved was the editorial staff of the Third World Quarterly in London were getting death threats. Right. Credible death threats. Yes, credible death threats. And the Metropolitan Police said to them, you know, <laughs> we can't promise you safety. You know, we don't like assign bodyguard units to everybody. So... <laughs> the editor editors. called me. Right. The editor called me, and I said, "Of course, retract it. Or yeah. Withdraw it is the correct term. Withdraw it was yeah. not retracted. It was withdrawn by me for for the physical safety of the staff there. Reprinted in Academic Questions, separate journal, and then eventually formed the core of the book. That's the case for colonialism. Okay, so so this is so fascinating to me on so many levels because I had people coming up to me when I defended you for that. And I actually sent out some emails to people saying, because there was something at PSU, right? Where they they wanted you sanctioned. They wanted you... To tell, tell us well, about well, that. The, the, uh, right. So I got a lot of hate mail from PSU as well. Eventually, the provost at the time issued a statement. This was like within a week of the, of the outburst. And I mean, this is like a, a provost statement on the issue saying, Dr. Gilly published this article. Um, it doesn't represent the views of the faculty at Portland State. Um, some people say he should be fired, but we have this thing called academic freedom. So we encourage people to debate and discuss and rebut his arguments. I suppose people said that was a good response because she was saying we can't act. To me, it was a lame ass response mm. because she said, we can't act. Mm. <laughs> In other words, if I could fire this guy, I would. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have this problem called academic freedom, which yeah. protects right-wing fascists like Gilly. And uh, if we fired him, we'd be violating our state constitution, which we would be in addition to his academic freedom. It was hardly a, uh, we are dismayed that our faculty members have participated in the mob right. to silence Dr. Gilly because so many PSU faculty members signed those petitions, including one who's now my departmental colleague because her department failed and we acquired it. See, that's fascinating to me because I don't know if I've told you this, but I caught massive shit for defending you and saying, and I sent out emails and I said, if you have a problem with this, because there was a vote, I can't remember, it was something like someone voted and I said, I'd like to find all those people who voted and I'd like to moderate a debate on stage between you and Dr. Gilly. And guess how many people took that up? Right. Zero. Well, so, yeah, so there was an attempt at a faculty resolution condemning me. Right. That failed. <clears throat> then. So it was, it was those people, I think. Yeah. I said, every, everybody who, who I said, I'd like to have you on stage. So if you, if you have a problem with this, that's great. That you're totally entitled to do that. Uh, let's go on stage and we'll have that public conversation. It'll be free. We'll through 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 some student union and we'll have that conversation. Nobody, right. nobody took me up on right. it. Right. Zero. Right. So they're against something, but they don't feel they don't know enough about what they're against to to feel that they can defend it. Well, th th what they told themselves is this is like agreeing to a debate on the Holocaust, and I won't that, I, I won't participate that. in yep. this because it would just normalize this as a debate. This is not debatable. Colonialism was evil, lock, stock, and barrel. <clears throat> and even having the temerity to, to ask me to debate it shows how unreformed you are. Right. And, you know, we really need to shut this down. So, okay, whatever. That's just the totalitarian mindset. But having failed at the faculty senate level, 
The faculty union, really just Jennifer Ruth, a film studies professor who was the academic freedom director at the faculty union, who later wrote a book attacking me and other faculty members. God, how uh, Orwellian is that? Yeah, academic freedom. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Academic freedom director. So the faculty union passed a resolution condemning my research. I call it a fatwa because that's what it is. Yeah. It's still out there. They haven't revoked the fatwa. Uh, so I'm still under fatwa from the PSU faculty union. And then my department chair, Melody Valdini, commissioned a report from some of our senior colleagues about how I could be shut down, what they could do to curtail me or silence me, included things like forcing me to never say I was a PSU faculty member. <laughs> and, the only uh, good and, thing. and passing <laughs> a, fac a fac good faculty favor. resolution uh, condemning my research and requiring me to pre-notify the faculty chair anytime I was about to publish an article or an essay that might potentially be controversial. Only me would be subject <laughs> to this. She then <laughs> convenes a secret meeting of everyone except me to, to, to talk about this. And then they have a departmental meeting to vote on it, which I don't go to. Neither does one of my senior colleagues who thinks the whole thing's obnoxious. And the resolution passes. <laughs> just can't make it up. You can't make it up. So according up. to my faculty right now, I'm subject to these special burdens. I'm not supposed to say I work at Portland State. I'm supposed to notify my chair anytime I'm about to pass, write something <laughs> controversial. And I'm not supposed to uh, engage further in the colonialism debate in the classroom. <laughs> Wow. You can see how closely I've abided by that, right? Because they, they're completely out of line. But what, what does this tell you? I mean, so this, this isn't, this passed by a majority of vote of my, my, and you're my own you're, department. You're, you're tenured and uh, you're- Of course, a, I'm fully tenured, yeah. Well, I just want yeah. to make clear. Yeah. But then, you're, then you're, that, you're a full professor. Yeah, then that department chair tried to prevent me getting post-tenure reviews. Okay, saying, so that, let's, if you don't, can, can we talk about that? Because yeah. I find that fascinating. So last time I looked, and I haven't looked recently, um, there was a list of faculty member, and I don't know the metrics for this. I would imagine it's just you aggregate something from Google Scholar, but I don't yep. really know. Yeah. Of the people who published, most published in the university, yep. your name is consistently in the top 10. Yeah. Consistently right. in the top 10. And the only one in our department, the only one in our school of government, the only one of two in our college. Okay. And... I, we can edit this out if if this is if this is too too revealing. Um, wasn't the the thing about the post tenure review? They said you didn't publish enough. There was something in there about that, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. My publication record was insufficient. Uh, not, 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 of course, of course. It's it's since tenure, right? But but I had published a lot since getting tenure. Four more journal Claudine, articles, more than Claudine Gay, three books, uh, and. Um, and the argument was, but the real argument was, the case for colonialism discredited all of my prior scholarship because it was just clickbait for right-wing websites. Yeah. And the fact that it had been withdrawn just showed right. it was academically flawed. In other words, intentionally ignoring the facts of the case about why it was withdrawn, which was not any th problem with the peer review the process. Physical safety of physical the, safety of the staff was right. why it was withdrawn. It had nothing to do with the academic. And then she had the temerity to say, all those citations to the case for colonialism are really just evidence of of an academic network trying to boost his citation count. 
you know, and, and no, look at the citations. They're from like gender studies and coloniality weekly, you know, yeah. they're all, they're all mostly critical citations, but whatever. My job as an academic is to stimulate others to think more and citations reflect. I'm glad you look at it, by the way. I'm glad you look at it like that. Citations reflect the extent to which people feel your work engages them, whether for good or for bad. Yeah, by the way, just as a parenthetical, the conceptual penis is a social construct. Most papers in the humanity, I think it's, um, so, so um, this is a little fuzzy because someone, when this was originally came out, they, they mixed commentary, as you said before, but um, I think 75%, don't quote me on this exact, something like this, 75% of the of, of percent of papers in the humanities are cited between zero and one times. So that's that's amazing. The conceptual penis has been cited. I don't even know how many times, but you know, dozens of times. Well, now it has an afterlife, right? It has an afterlife. Uh, but so here's because the- because it's now cited as an article that was a hoax article as right. part of the discussion on epistemology, right. which is which is still cited. It's in I think it's in like the top top one percent or higher of all gender studies articles. <laughs> It's crazy. It's, so I'm one of the most cited gender studies scholars of all time. Um, but, but I just... Before, you dick. Before, <laughs> I can't help myself. Okay, so I want to talk about... Because I've been thinking about this. I, I, before we delve, delve into the case of colonialism, I want to talk about what you're saying about the citations. Because I don't think that's a particularly good... I think it's a very broad metric because again i only want to go to claudine gay right now because i've read her stuff and her stuff is hundreds of citations i think mine my most cited article is like 500 and something it's like behaviorism constructivism and socratic pedagogy or something so but her stuff is picked up by a bunch of all these race hucksters Mm -hmm. they just cite their own things and it artificially props up the citation rate so you can't just look at the h index or the number of citations and that's I mean, it kind of tells you something, but it so kind of does what we, not It's what we call a rough indicator, right? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a rough it's a, indicator. It's a rough indicator that has a lot of what we would call uh, reliability problems, which right. means there's a lot of noise in that indicator, right? right. So, it's, so it is probably generally tracking scholarly productivity, but there's a lot of noise in that indicator because of the sorts of things you talk about, you know, where you publish, whether, you know, it just takes one other scholar to cite it in a way that it becomes a kind of uh, what we call a reflexive citation for others. Like every time you write about topic X, you cite this one. And and none of those people have ever read your article, right? right? It's called a junk citation. If you become a junk citation, your citation count goes off the charts because everyone just feels they need to cite you every time. So every time someone writes a article about topic X, they always throw this in. It's a junk citation. They never read it. They never thought about it, but it's just there. So there's a lot, a lot of noise on the upside. There's a lot of noise on the, on the downside too. So some really important articles don't get cited much because people end up not citing the original or even knowing that was the original because it's someone else who talked about that issue who gets all the citations. So yeah. you can be deflated down and you can be deflated up. Yeah, it's it's good. I think I think I like the idea that it's rough. I mean, I remember when I went up for promotion, I had a higher H index than anybody in any on my committee, than my department chair, everyone. And again, I think that there's a kind of um, anti-meritocratic element, particularly at operative at PSU. Okay, so anyway, back back to the case for colonialism. I so you can kind of 
or you can figure out the thesis from the title. This is not a particularly complicated thing. And I think because it was so easy to grasp that people picked up on it and just went just completely bananas, right? So when you started the interview off, when I said you sat down with my son and I, and you explained it to me, and I was just, it was like a massive light bulb. I don't, do you remember that? You remember mm -hmm. that conversation? Yeah. And so could you explain in a nutshell for people who bear, who, who are not familiar with historical colonialism, like what in a nutshell is the case for colonialism and why does it matter that people beyond the academic controversies, like why does this subject matter? So the easiest way to think about the case for colonialism is it's a bit like saying the case for oxygen in the atmosphere. Like, do you really think we'd be here if there were no oxygen in the atmosphere? Colonialism wasn't a bunch of people in pit hats jumping into a ship with guns and say, let's go repress and conquer black people, right? Colonialism was part of a huge structural transformation of the world that began with the rise of Europe and the, the separation of European development from the rest, right? The, the great divergence, it's called, in economic history. When the, when the Europe just took off politically, economically, socially, organizationally, militarily, technologically, right? Suddenly this huge gap emerged between Europe and the rest. Now, when is that? Post-Renaissance, right? So 17th, you know, 1600s, basically, early 1600s. I mean, Britain's first colonies are like Bermuda, 1603, right? This is the first time the Spanish and the Portuguese. And then this accelerates all the way through the 19th century into the early 20th century. So Europe was spreading out whether you liked it or not. Right. Okay. So this is the first thing to remember. People assume there's some kind of voluntarism all the time, right? That they decided and they sat down and said, let's go colonize the world. Never happened, right? Europe spread out because it had things to trade. It had guns. It had shipping technology. It had missionaries. It had explorers. It had scientists. It had people who were interested in establishing understanding of foreign cultures. All this was going to happen, no matter whether governments were part of it or not, right? Europe was coming for the world. It was going to engage the world. So that's the first thing to remember, okay? The, the, what we call the push factors were not governments like planning colonial expeditions. Right, right. It was simply this massively advanced civilization expanding around the world. The second part, on the demand side, Almost always, these people were welcomed. The relationships were friendly. Why? Because the Europeans offered things that were useful. They brought food. They brought metal. They brought technology. They often brought protection from a local rival. I mean, the way that Nigeria became a British colony is basically that the king of Lagos had been chased off his throne by internal rivals. And they, he asked the British to come on shore and put him back on his seat. And his local ally said, yes, please come. And for God's sake, colonize us because otherwise we're gonna be swamped and degraded and enslaved by this group that's slightly to the north of us. And that, that's the common pattern of how European colonialism was established was the, we call these the pull factors, right? Local populations almost always welcomed collaborated with, cooperated with, or at least accommodated the European expansion, right? So the idea of force and resistance is nonsense. It's not a historically accurate picture of how Europe came to occupy through colonial control 
you know, depending on how you look at it, two thirds or three quarters of the globe, right? So in part, there's no case to be made other than it's something like the case for, for volcanoes or something like, like we don't decide whether or not there are volcanoes in the world. There just are. Colonialism was of that sort. It just was going to happen. It's classic example of civilizational rise and expansion that's happened throughout human history. Okay, so what about this guy? Wasn't King Leopold like a real, I mean, my conception, he's a real, just a true nasty son of a bitch. He's like chop no, off. No, all wrong. In fact, I have an article, at, one of the chapters is called In Defense of Leopold's Congo. So most people's understanding of the Congo Free State, which was before the Belgian takeover of that. So this was a, a private colony rather than a Belgian colony. Uh, comes from Adam Hochschild's book, King Leopold's Ghost, which I've shown is a vast fabrication. Uh, there was no sorry population. To I, I have to tell you this. My, the way where I got that from is my, my kid, um, my son, I'm not going to say his name, brought home uh, um, <clears throat> um, papers in his senior year from that book and that's where I read it and that's where I got that. So he right. got that in the schools. Yeah, so, so, Sorry, so, I just wanted so to... So Hochschild uh, had an incredibly deleterious impact on our understanding of the Congo Free State with his book, King Leopold's Ghost, 1998. Um, so the way I... So, so here's the facts about the Congo Free State is it was an ungoverned and ungovernable part of Africa that none of the colonial powers could enter because A, the mortality rates were about 20% per year for a European there because of disease and, and climate. Um, slave trading and intertribal warfare was rampant. Even the British could not stop the slave trading in the central Congo. Those slaves were taken to Eastern Africa and onto the Arab area. So this is the East African slave trade run by the Arabs and the Indians. And King Leopold said, let me try to establish at least some trading stations and some navigable rivers there. That was the deal, okay? Now, King Leopold's Congo managed to create a railway up into the central part of the country and certain amount of stability by stopping slave trading and intertribal warfare with a very thin amount of people, very few, right? Still vastly unexplored. And as a result of that population probably slightly increased. Maybe there was a decrease because of the rise of sleeping sickness and some endemic diseases that were coming in. But basically it was an amazingly positive contribution to the people of the Congo. Now, in a very small part, about 10% of that territory, they grew rubber. And instead of forced labor requirements, they imposed rubber quotas. So, you know, when you're running a government, you need to pay for the government. There's three ways to do it. You can tax people, but if they have no money, taxation is not feasible. Most common way to use it then is forced labor, right? It's called corvée labor. You pay your taxes in terms of labor. In the rubber areas, the labor was demanded in terms of the delivery of rubber quotas from different villages. Now, in most of these areas, the rubber came very easily. In other parts of these rubber areas, the local militias uh, who were hired by the, by the Belgian rubber companies engaged in coercive practices to get the locals to bring in the rubber. And there were some atrocities for sure. I estimate maybe 10,000 Belgian black Congolese died in skirmishes or conflicts between the Belgian 
rubber companies. Now, don't forget these are black militias, but it's black on black conflict. But nonetheless, the rubber companies, rubber companies, and and the locals. Ten thousand, terrible number. But don't forget, we're talking about a country of ten million at this point. Okay, and that is the worst of it. All those pictures you see of severed limbs are either fake, meaning those are people who who had their hands cut off because of gangrene or because they had their hands cut off in battles, or when you see them holding the hands of people, that's because it was tribal custom in Congo when you were issued a rifle with 10 bullets. If you came back with only eight bullets, you needed to show that those two bullets had been used to kill others and you would cut their hands off and the hands had showed, and this was typically soldier on soldier conflict, not against villagers who didn't turn in their rubber quotas. So. The British Congo reformers realized that if they could show some pictures of people with severed hands and say this is King Leopold's rubber minions, that it would spark outrage because they were, what they really wanted is the Brits to colonize the Congo. And it did some, it create a, a movement in support of this, but a vast amount of lies and propaganda, which Adam Hochschild repeats in his book, says that 10 million people died from the British, from the Belgian Congolese, not the Belgian King Leopold's Congolese rubber operations. Complete nonsense. And how do we know that figure is wrong? Because demographers in the 70s, 80s, and 90s started to go back and do the data calculations. 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, mainly the 80s and 90s is when they finally got good enough evidence and demographers estimating population. It shows the population is basically flat the whole time because Despite the downward pressure on population caused by endemic disease, King Leopold's Congo was maintaining stability. Food supplies was, were rising. Uh, slave operations were declining. So his contribution was very positive. There was a negative countervailing effect from endemic disease, which was coming in. And the net result was basically a flat population. Well, okay. That's fascinating because that totally upends. Totally different. I mean, I mean, and if you try to go on Wikipedia, and correct. Well, Wikipedia is a corrupt. Yeah, if you try if you try and correct any of those fake facts on Wikipedia, you'll get immediately edited out. Well, which I don't do yeah. because I know it's going to oh, happen. But, friend, yeah, but friends okay. of mine who do this say that I, they keep trying to indicate. Okay, no, so that's another. Wiki, the corruption of Wikipedia is another story. That's a totally. I don't want to go down that road. Wikipedia is corrupt. Okay, so but just just imagine, yeah, how pernicious a myth that is of. Because it often gets raised in this debate, right? Well, what about the Congo? Yeah. You know, wasn't the Congo terrible? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, no, it wasn't actually. It was amazingly positive. Black Lives Mattered to King Leopold. And he did an amazing <laughs> thing to support them. And yet, and just imagine how pernicious. Now, I caught Adam Hochschild actually doctoring a quotation in his book. And he recognized he had doctored it and he apologized and said, well, oh, I, that's I, good. I said, I hope it gets, he said, I hope it gets corrected. Basically he'd taken oh, a, that, that's a good attitude. Yeah. But I mean, so it's just like I said, a was not a, and I'm sorry about that, but it anchored my whole tale. Maybe he uh, should cancel the book or give right. a speech. Um, he basically took a Belgian official who said, I don't think we should be going in and forcing coercive rubber harvesting because Otherwise, we'll just be like the Arabs who would cut off hands and feet. He, quote, he doctored that quotation to say, if we're going to do rubber harvesting, we're going to have to be cutting off hands and feet. Oh, wow. That's a significant. Big. <clears throat> so, Completely inverted the meeting, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's how his book operates, in my view. And it's a complete farce. So one of the things that you said that was so interesting to me, and again, this is way outside my, my area of expertise, so excuse me, um, is that you said... 
when you think about colonialism, you have to think about what the alternative is. And people vote with their feet and where do they go? And so I want you to please talk a little bit about what was the alternative and what did you mean by people vote with their feet? <clears throat> yeah, so the alternative clearly is not well-governed, stable, prosperous societies. Nowhere that was colonized was like that. India, which has to take a lot of time in any analysis because it's two thirds of the colonial experience because of the people, uh, was in the midst of the collapse of the Mughal dynasty and the attempt by Nadar Shah of Persia to replace the Mughal empire with a Persian empire, uh, which would have been much more bloody and violent. And these little feudal fiefdoms, you know, that were left over from the collapse of the Mughal dynasty were fighting amongst each other. So when the British showed up, the East India Company in the first instance showed up, started establishing forts that were essentially trading forts, what do you know? Within years, people started moving closer to the fort. Why? Why would, why would they escape the, the wonderful life of being a lower caste Hindu under a Maharaja uh, whose job was to pick up the shit of the Hindu elites for the rest of your life and all of your generations to come? Why on earth would you go and live near the British East India Company's fort? A, you had security. B, you had job opportunities. C, if you were from a lower caste, you might work for the British Army in a canteen. Hell, even cleaning their latrines would be better. Building their forts, you suddenly escape from social oppression. You're suddenly going to be in a modern area with access to technology and running water maybe because the forts started to expand, right? So people were voting with their feet already. Once the Indian mutiny happens, which is actually a, a small minority of the Indian troops under the East India Company, and the British decide the governance has got out of control, like this was supposed to be a trading venture, it's now basically a government, so they formalize it, it becomes the government of India. Then we see this massive influx of Indians into the most heavily colonized cities, right? Calcutta, Hyderabad, Bombay, right? New Delhi. Because why? Why are people moving closer to colonialism if colonialism is so terrible for them? You know, shouldn't they be fleeing into the mountains? Shouldn't they be, shouldn't they abandoning the cities? No, of course they're not. They're moving closer in. They're trying to get into the English education systems. Eventually they're trying to send all their kids to Eton and Oxbridge, mm -hmm. where they become tenured professors and denounce colonialism, of course. But it's the hypocrisy of the anti-colonialists who don't want to recognize how much their forebears wanted, sought to be part of, engaged with, benefited from, and recognized the benefits of the colonial experience compared to what would have happened otherwise. See, that's, that's fascinating to me. What do you make of this fact that in Hong Kong during the uprisings a few years ago, they were flying American flags? And British flags. And, and correct, and British flags. And... It kind of goes, Melissa Chen was the person who gave me this idea. It kind of goes against that narrative. I think I, I read something she wrote about that. Um, it goes against the anti-colonial narrative where these are people who are colonized and they're flying American and British flags. So th there is a, even to say, as you're the world expert in this and you would know that there is a case for colonialism, even that sets people off in a kind of um, 
deranged frenzy. So even to make this, even to make that suggestion. So is the reason for that? And I'm speculating. Tell me if my reasoning is off. My speculation is off. Is the reason for that because they look at? It's kind of like Israel in a sense. They look at Israel as a penetration of Western values. They look at colonialism as the penetration of Western values. And they view the West as kind of the wellspring of all things that are bad. Is that the basic oversimplified idea? So there is definitely a derangement syndrome going on here. I mean, Israel derangement syndrome, colonialism derangement syndrome, which, which, which you mentioned the idea and it sets them off uh, in a kind of a lunatic rage of, of an inability to think constructively or dispassionately about an issue. Um, and to form arguments against it, too. That's the other part of the syndrome. Yeah, or to even be willing to engage in the historical evidence or debate. Uh, and, you know, I, I caught out uh, this professor, uh, one of those who wrote a long article against me, who is a professor, a tenured professor in African studies and whatnot. And, and I basically took his essay and found that none of the quotations he used actually said what he said they said. Did, they, did he publish it? Yes. Where did he publish it? Uh, it was an essay in the Washington Post. Oh, so it wasn't peer-reviewed then? No, no. But I mean, he's an, a scholar. He's citing, he's basically trading on his academic credentials. Okay. And saying, like, here's the... Yeah, it's actually worse the, that it's in the Washington Post. It's worse, yeah. Because, because he's saying, just trust me. I'm an academic, you know. And I, I, here's the quote. Here's the citation, you know. Whoa, go through every single one. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. And he probably hasn't even read it before. So... What is this telling you? This is telling you that it's no longer an area of academic inquiry, by which we mean evidence, data, hypothesis, falsification, debate, Correct. right? It's an area of ideology. It's an area of totalitarian thinking. And so for someone, again, to step outside of the people uh, elicits a kind of Maoist reaction as it did in the Cultural Revolution and all the other Maoist movements, which is, which is, you know, beat the dog when they fall in the gutter, as they say in Chinese, you know? I mean, this is just an outrage against it's a, civilization. It's a terrible expression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so to me, uh, the, and, but again, my normal response is, okay, here's my long response to all of your critiques. Cited, footnoted, double check my footnotes. If you think what I'm saying, the evidence I'm citing doesn't say that, please write a rebuttal. You know, 20,000 words later. What do all those people say in response? Nada. Because it's not really an academic topic anymore, right? And to even yeah. say all of your evidence that you've mustered against me is, is, is like, tofu construction, you know, another Chinese phrase, uh, for them is like, is like saying Claudia Gay plagiarized. Even to raise that white Eurocentric perspective is just evidence of your white supremacy. You don't get it. The ship has sailed. The ideology is correct. If you didn't get on board with the ideology and you keep raising these old liberal shibboleths against it, it just shows how deeply entrenched the problems are in you, not me. Yeah, that's it's disparaging because that's the dominant moral orthodoxy right now. That's currently what's in in fashion, and it's not as if it's not only as if a certain conclusion was 
orthodox, it's a process to get to the conclusion. It's the demeaning of evidence. It's the demeaning of reason. It's the wholesale writing off of data sets. And so that makes the problem much more difficult to solve. It's not like, well, we know the earth is warming or anthropogenic warming, et cetera. So what do we do about it? Those are political considerations based upon data set. It's you just wipe out the whole data set. So you, then you're in la la because, land. Because what are you interested in, truth or power? Correct. Right? If you're interested in truth, you're constantly trying to revise, are we doing this right? What's the evidence? If you're interested in power, the truth question doesn't come into it. What ideology will be effective as a tool of us gaining and maintaining and using power? Yeah. That's the question, right? So anti-colonialism then became decolonization, then became post-colonialism. All of these things, it turns out, had nothing to do with truth. They were ideologies of power. First, they were ideologies of power for the people in the colonies who wanted to take over from the colonial rulers. They'd sit there, look at government house saying, wow, it'd be great to sleep there, sit there and sip whiskeys all day and I'd be served upon, I'd probably retain some of those white staff so I could be served by a white staff member. I mean, the people would go crazy to see a black man served by a white man. Um, then decolonization, which was taking these societies that had a rule of law, a court system, a high court, property rights, guaranteed freedoms, uh, a meritocratic education system, decolonized went, I'm taking all that over. I'm nationalizing the cocoa industry. I'm suspending the habeas corpus. I'm seizing property, right? That was decolonization. It was, an, it was not a ideology of public policy. It was an ideology of power and resources. Fascinating. And then post-colonialism became the same thing. Post-colonialism was to say, we cannot use the rational European way of thinking about the world. We can't expect brown and black people to think that way. We need to adopt a post-colonial perspective so that we don't hold them to those same standards. This is a properly post-colonial view on what you should have in order to be the president of Harvard. Claudine Gay perfectly fits that post-colonial yeah. perspective. She wasn't elevated on merit or metrics or competence. That's the colonial mindset we need to decolonize. And we need to have a post-colonial Harvard president. And she was it. And she was glamorous and perfect post-colonialism at Harvard. It's been decolonized. And there it is in its full glory. And that's what you get. Yeah, I, I, I actually agree with them. I was, I was really disappointed. I mean, Colin Gay as the president of Harvard deserves. And I yes. was very much disappointed when she resigned. I think I, I was <laughs> yeah. genuinely she right. The president. She's a perfect her. fit for the university. I couldn't agree more. Perfect fit. I yeah. couldn't agree more. She's yeah. keeping her. It is the modern decolonized anti-racist <clears throat> university. Perfect. And perfect. I, and I could show you a hundred institutes of higher education in the third world that went through exactly that process after the end of the colonial era, and the presidency was seized by some party hack who could barely spell his name. And the research departments were given to party hacks who were not the best in their field. I mean, this was this was the Soviet Union, right? Yeah. We're all, I mean, the Soviet Union, Russian scientific and mathematical tradition used to be unparalleled, right. top in the world, right? Until the Soviet Union. And all that academic excellence was replaced by ideology. So what it took to be the head of the university was you had to be a good party cadre. What it took to be the head of the agronomics department was you believed in some quack theory that some party hack had invented, and that was the only route to the top. Uh, so it seems that 
Well, two, two things. Why should someone read The Case for Colonialism? So I, start I, with that one. Yeah, so, so I think the book brings together the logical evidence-based arguments. And it does so not in the, in the sort of thematic chapter by chapter, but using what I call episodes of colonialism. So I look at specific cases. I look at Malaya. I look at Yemen. I look at India. I look at the Congo. I look at German colonies. I look at you know specific instances where colonialism took place because I find it a lot easier to deal with instances, you know, places rather than than themes. I think it's more accessible. So, and then it's forwarded by by the broad thematic arguments, right? And at the end, I bring in responses to colonialism from two of the great third world intellectuals, Chinua Kebe, which was the article I published you know, expanded, revised, and then one on uh, V.S. Naipaul, who's the Nobel laureate uh, writer from uh, Trinidad. His book uh, blew me away. Who was, to me, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Yeah, totally and, and was mind. only very reluctantly given the Nobel Prize because at a certain point, even the woke Nobel committee could not ignore this man's greatness. Yeah. Um, and they tried to spin him as an anti-colonial writer, which he wasn't. But um, so I think if you want to kind of and, and here's, here's what I would say about my book. I, I'm not an, on the one hand, on the other hand type of person. I think colonialism was an unmitigated good. That doesn't mean during this entire period of colonialism, a lot of bad stuff didn't happen. Of course it did. We're talking about human societies. If there was not bad stuff, it wouldn't be a human society. Right. What I mean was at the level of the general systemic factors that brought colonialism into being and how it operated, and what it left behind, all of that unmitigated good, okay? So, and I think that's what distinguishes my book from my colleague Nigel Bigger's book, Colonialism and Moral Reckoning. Fantastic book. Dr. Bigger, on the other hand, trying very hard to be that, that terrible tick in the British personality, reasonable, dear fellow, reasonable, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? And he is reasonable, and so he does try to give more fair play to critical arguments. I just think he's trying a bit too hard to be reasonable in that British manner of not too sure about anything, very pra practical. You know, I call this the Hobbit mentality of like no adventures and no big theories. So I respect him a lot, but it's really not an argument for colonialism, his book is. It's more of an introduction to the debate. Mm. Mine is the only, and I would say the same about Niall Ferguson's book, Empire. Oh, I love that book. Uh, which that is great. Which is fantastic because he really does bring in a lot of the detail. He also has a kind of thematic introduction. To I the, have a signed copy of that. The five, <laughs> uh, whatever he calls them, the five super apps yeah. of Western civilization, property rights, markets, you know, whatever. Um, but Ferguson's also one of those too clever by what they call too clever by half in, in the UK, right? He's a brilliant guy, right? And he's so brilliant that he can't help but throwing in all kinds of little insults and nastinesses about British colonialism because to be a real intellectual in the British tradition, like bigger, need to be balanced, right? Need to be on the one hand, on the other hand. Although his general argument is colonialism was great and British Empire created the modern world. Uh, both of them, in my mind, are a little bit too much of a um, um, on the one hand, on the other hand. So if you want a book that simply says, here's the case and here's the evidence and here's why I disagree with these arguments against it, mine's the only one. All right. That's f fascinating. So, so let me ask you this. You are in the twilight of your career. Would you say that's fair to say? 
Yes. And you're, we're approximately the same age and you're going on sabbatical next term. You're at an institution where the vast majority of people despise you. <laughs> Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. At least in the humanities and social sciences. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what's next for you? I mean, what's next for you? Well, I think there's always this, uh, this dilemma of um, when do you leave a sinking ship? Um, and I answered that question. <laughs> you answered that question. <laughs> and, and I don't mean Portland State is sinking. It's a state institution. It'll survive in one form or another. But what I, what I mean is if the intellectual environment is sinking oh, or it's, disappeared, it's sunk, uh, okay. then, you know, at what point do you abandon or what point do you say, you know, they should triple my salary. I'm the only thing, Correct. one of the only things keeping this place to some degree intellectually honest. Uh, so to what, to what extent do you say, I, I got to stay, you know, N not because I care about the institution itself per se, but because, uh, anywhere else I went, right. Any other university would have some degree of the same problems. And to the extent yeah. that it didn't, I would say, well, I'm just replicating what's, I mean, if there were, if there were a place like the, the Stanford business school, which has created a vigorous classical liberalism series, of course, it's in the business school, not the film school. Yeah. Um, you would say, well, I'm. You know, the work's already been done here. The problem, as I see it, is the problem with you staying there, it kind of legitimizes them when they don't deserve it. Right? I mean, have you thought about the idea that, and I'm just totally tossing it out there, like University of Austin is going to do a, a debate and speaker series. I think you'd be a fantastic person. I think you could go on the road and debate this, and I think you'd draw huge audiences. Also, though, keep in mind, and you will know this too from being in the classroom, is there's a huge difference between the students and the faculty. Oh, absolutely. Right? 100%. Students, even the students who ultimately are very woke, very left-wing, they're still curious. They still want to listen. They still want to hear from you. They still want to have a discussion after class. Okay, how they many? actually... Yeah. Uh, so, 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 you know, so what is... What is, what is the experience as a faculty member in an American woke university? Well, it's true that your experience with your colleagues is, is a big part of it because you're working together with them and they shape the environment and they pass resolutions against you. But on the other hand, your experience with the students is also a big part of what you're, what you're living through. And I love my students and I love being in the classroom with them and I find them very open-minded and curious and interested to hear different perspectives. And the fact that they would go to your class at all would probably mean they either like you or they hate you, but almost no one would never hurt, have heard. Well, right. They, they, they get to select, right? So if they're really opposed, they just won't come, but a lot of them do. And uh, the only you know, problem students I ever have are actually the graduate students uh, who you know, have decided they're on the side of justice and they're marching for the revolution. Um, I quote one of them in my book, a guy who was going on to do a PhD and was saying that I have to make clarifying remarks in my letters <clears throat> that I in no way was in solidarity with Dr. Gilly. <laughs> you can tell by the language where he was coming from. Uh, but, but he's the outlier. I mean, the students, which is ultimately, you know, in terms of your daily experience, shapes your daily experience. I have no problem with my students and they have no problem with me. So what's next for you? What are you going to do? 
Well, I think partly we're all waiting to see what happens to higher education in the next year. Well, we know it's going to happen. Well, maybe we do. Maybe we don't. I, I think there has to be a reckoning, especially now. It's not just the Claudine Gay question and the DEI bans that some states are passing. I mean, that's... And, and it's not also, it's not the, only the plagiarism questions. And plagiarism. It's also the enrollment decline. It's the demographic cusp cliff. They call it the demographic cliff that they're all about to fall off. Um, it's the donors. It's the funding, right? It's the college debt. I mean, it's all of that, which has to lead to some reformulation of the university. And then the question is, you know, what's the business model going forward? Because we know that universities thrive when they get the best students, right? Because universities are basically, um, they, they, they live off their signaling, right? Mm. The reason they hire great faculty is not because those faculty know how to teach. Mm. <laughs> Often they're terrible teachers. And the reason they, they love getting great students is not necessarily because those students are the most socially minded and positive, but because everyone wants to go somewhere where there's a bunch of smart people, right? That's the university brand is we're taking you to a new level when you come here, surrounded by smart people on campus that you can learn from. So to the extent that someone like Claudine, think, think of the damage of a Claudine Gay case against the Harvard brand, right? Your president is not only academically incompetent, and administratively stupid, but she's a plagiarist, mm, right? 11 citations. Yeah, say. I mean, just amazing damage mm. to the brand in terms of what universities are supposed to offer. And to we're going to keep her on faculty. Correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm pretty sure this is the case, but I'm not positive. I read the metrics of um, Portland State accepts 98% of its applicants. 98%. So how intellectually rigorous could it possibly be when they only reject 2%? Like anyone yeah. with a with a with a pulse should be able to get in there. Yeah. So admission is easy, right? So you're talking about the bottom of the of the ladder. The in bottom terms of, of the university academics. Of, of course, you still have to pass classes, right? You still have to succeed, and you know there's some debate about <clears throat> whether that's even very difficult anymore. But yeah. but as you move the up in the ecosystem, age, the average grade, I think, in some places. I remember I looked into this a while ago. It's a, I think it was it, when I did my d dissertation. I think it was a minus in. I'm not sure, but it's. I think it's in the A minus is the average range. It varies obviously by college and department. I think philosophy is a little lower than that, but um, so you anybody almost anybody can get in. I wonder who those two percent are. Like literally, they must be. I just can't even imagine. And then once you get in, you you kind of sail. Like I think the average grade at Harvard now is an A. So like once yeah. you get in, you're sailing. But keep in mind, what colleges and universities should be judged upon mm -hmm. is the value added they provide to students. Right. So last time I looked at the data for a university like Portland State, it was actually doing pretty good about average, adding value to its students. Oh, in yeah. other words, the SAT and then this. Yeah. Yeah. You look at their trajectory coming out of high school yeah, yeah. and where a typical American will end up earnings wise with yeah, that yeah. kind of trajectory. The universities can deflate it or inflate it, right? If they add value, what they say is they take someone who barely graduated high school, yeah. has very little confidence in their intellectual abilities, never really learned to write. Portland State or a place like Portland State, if they're doing a good job, takes them and says, look, you can do this. You have an intellectual spark. You need some confidence. You need some writing. You need to be introduced to reading. You need to be introduced to skill-based building. 
And at the end of the day, you were on trajectory to be below the poverty line. You're now in the middle class. Okay. Whereas a Harvard, that's, good. that's a great accomplishment. Yeah. Whereas a Harvard might that's take great. a high flyer who should have a mansion at Martha's Vineyard and turn them into a down and out, you know, computer programmer in <clears throat> Scranton, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, because they took away value by telling them they should get involved in this or saying skills don't matter or whatever. So, you know, universities, uh, of course, they serve different populations. The real metric of a university is the value added, what they yeah, do to yeah. you compared to where you were heading otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think, well, last time I checked, Portland State was doing okay. But I mean, that's the metric. And like I say, the liberal arts colleges are the worst in America for value added because they detract value. Yeah, that heartens me because I, like you, I love my students. I thought the overwhelming majority were fantastic and they were eager and they were thoughtful. And yes, I definitely had students and I'm not gonna downplay this. You know, I don't know what percentage who came in wanting to hate me for sure, but they came in and they took the class and my hat's off to them. And so my student experience was overwhelmingly positive and so it's heartening to hear that. Um, well, Bruce, you've been very generous with your time. The case for colonialism. Uh, I wish you seriously the best of luck, not only in the sale of the book and getting the, those ideas out there, but I wish you the, the best of luck in your future endeavors. I genuinely believe that the university is not going to do well, but people like you will do extraordinarily well. Thanks. It's been great to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for watching. Everything we do is under the umbrella of the National Progress Alliance, nationalprogressalliance.org. It's a nonprofit, independent 501c3. Your generous donations keep us going and keep fueling content like this. So please help us out, make a donation. We very much appreciate it. Thank you.